for a kid with sensory sensitivities, if they are dreading going to school or they're dreading going to the dentist, it's because they know what's going to happen. They know they're going to go and there's going to be a sensory overloading experience. That's not anxiety. They might be calling it anxiety because that's the only word they know, but that's actually dread. And, and anxiety is based on a fear of what might happen. With anxiety, avoidance just fuels the fire. And so you really target avoidance behaviors. Now you want to do the same thing with a sensory dread. Welcome to Tilt Parenting, a podcast featuring interviews and conversations aimed at inspiring, informing, and supporting parents raising differently wired kids. I'm your host, Debbie Reber. I think we can probably all relate to the challenge of getting a diagnosis that feels like it really fits our child perfectly. And that's in large part because, well, our kids tend to be incredibly complex. Many of us see misdiagnosis among our kids or completely missed diagnoses. So I invited Dr. Megan Ananeff, a clinical psychologist specializing in the support and empowerment of neurodivergent adults through her expertise in neurodivergent affirming care and assessments, onto the show to talk about the complexity of diagnosis and the whys behind misdiagnoses. During this conversation, Megan, Anna, and I talk about so many different things, including diving deeper into the assessment process and why so many people slip through the cracks when seeking a diagnosis, why it's so important to get clarity around a child's wiring in order to provide them with the support that will be most meaningful and affirming, why identifying one's neurodivergence, whether that's through self-identification or a medical diagnosis, really matters and the kind of trauma a person can experience when they go through life without that diagnosis. We also discussed how to identify and vet neuropsych evaluators who take a neurodivergent affirming approach to the whole assessment process. As you can hear, we covered a lot of ground. And I should share that I first learned about Megan Anna through her wonderful Neurodivergent Insights Instagram page and her popular Misdiagnosis Mondays series of visuals. Megan Anna herself is a late-in-life diagnosed autistic ADHDer, and she brings a unique perspective and a deep, deep passion for enlightening the mental health field about the diverse manifestations of autism and ADHD beyond the stereotypes. She translates research into visualizations, which she shares on her website, Instagram, and through monthly workbooks, and she's co-authored two books and has published in several peer-reviewed psychological journals. Her forthcoming book, Self-Care for Autistic People, will be published in early 2024. Thanks so much. And now here is my conversation with Dr. Megan Ananeff. Hey, Megan, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Good to be here. Yeah, I'm looking forward to getting into your work. But I would love if you could, as a way to get started, tell us a little bit about your own story and how you got to be doing the work that you're doing in the world right now. Yeah, absolutely. Like a lot of autistic women and parents, my story starts with the identification of one of my children. And I'm seeing that so much. There's this term I really, really like the lost generation of autistic women. And we could also talk about the lost generation of ADHD women and also genderqueer and trans people and BIPOC people. But the term that really resonates with me is this lost generation of autistic women. And my journey was interesting because I was getting a doctorate in psychology. 
And so I supposedly this is, you know, one of the highest degrees possible in the mental health world. I should know better. Right. And it was interesting with with my oldest child, again, classic girl story. She'd been diagnosed with ADHD at a young age. But every couple, like maybe every six months, I'd be like, it just doesn't quite feel right. And I would look into autism, but then I'd go back to those stereotypes of like, no, but she enjoys people and she can do conversations. And so then, you know, my spouse and I would talk about it and be like, no, can't be. But it was about a month before I graduated and kind of a very specific situation happened that led to a pretty significant meltdown. It was due to her taking something very, very literally that was just obviously not literal. Me being autistic, I'm pretty direct. I was like, what if, what if this is autism? What if this is something else? You know, she looked at me and she's like, well, I'd be the same person. I would just understand myself better. So that started like a research dive into autism and girls. And like within two days of her and I learning about this together, we were like, yeah, this makes sense. And that was later confirmed with a medical diagnosis that led me down a rabbit trail around autism and women and realizing I was autistic again, later confirmed with a medical diagnosis it was shocking to me. Here I am a relational psychotherapist. I love like emotionally intense conversations. I'm pretty empathic and relational. And, you know, three weeks later, I graduated with a doctor in psychology. So that was where I was just like, something is really wrong with the field. If I struggled, I nearly missed my daughter. I missed myself for 37 years. And that's, that's where Misdiagnosis Monday came from. That's where my advocacy came from was just this realization of the mental health world, let alone the public. There's so much misinformation out there and so much we have to unlearn and relearn around specifically autism, but also ADHD and other forms of neurodivergence. Yeah, your story, as you're sharing it, I'm thinking of Dr. Devin Price's story is similar in some ways. We had Dr. Price on the show as well about his book, Unmasking Autism, which is fantastic. Such a good book. Yeah. Yeah. Game changer. I just find this so fascinating. And I hear this from so many people in my community through their children's identification. They're discovering this about themselves. I'd even like to go into that a little bit. I know there's a lot of women now, well, a lot of autistic adults in general or ADHD adults are self-identifying. And then you use this term medical diagnosis. Is medical considered when you actually go through a battery of tests or what is that? Yeah. So medical diagnosis is when, you know, a medical provider knights you with the official diagnosis. So self-identification, I think I actually got that term from Devin Price. I really like that term because again, it's moving away from diagnosis and pathology into like, this is an identity. Self-diagnosis is also a term. And I self-diagnosed before I was medically diagnosed. Now that's complicated because I had access to all the assessment tools. I had my IQ test. I was able to look at the data with a little bit higher, I guess, skill set just because I'm I'm trained in it. I'm a big fan of self-diagnosis because there are so many barriers to diagnosis. And there's frankly a lot of mental health professionals and assessors who still don't understand non-stereotypical presentations of autism and ADHD. So just for accessibility reasons and because of all the barriers people experience, yeah, I'm not against self-diagnosis, a proponent of it. I do think there is so much information happening with neurodivergence now that I think it would be easy for someone to like see one TikTok reel and identify with it 
for other reasons. So I suspect that is happening some, but even so, I think the benefits of self-diagnosis far outweigh the so-called risks. Yeah, it's interesting. I am not on TikTok, but I, I have been hearing about this, especially kind of high profile influencers or celebrities talking about their ADHD. And then all of a sudden, we have all these people who are now self-identifying. I do think it's a really interesting time. Actually, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. It's the way in which the COVID pandemic may or may not have contributed to this. I don't know that explosion is the right word, but there has been a big influx of adults who are discovering more about their neurodivergence. Yeah. I mean, I think it was a really like interesting intersection of factors. For one, COVID for a lot, especially those of us with sensory sensitivities, gave us an experience of baseline. So for example, before COVID for me, I mean, I've had chronic fatigue since my children were born and I just was coming to terms with this would be my reality until the world shut down and I was staying home. I didn't know what it was like to not be sensory overloaded all the time. I didn't know that this could be part of my experience. So I think for a lot of people, when things slowed down, they were able to experience a baseline. And then for ADHDers, when they lost structure, a lot of ADHDers really started to struggle with the loss of structure. And so their executive functioning struggles became more apparent. Those of us who are parents, we were now working and parenting. I love Esther Perel's idea that we weren't working from home, we were working with home. So again, more demands on our executive functioning. And then at the same time, we saw this increase in social media education and awareness. And what I'm really excited about, and this is where I think social media has been really helpful, is it's increased awareness around women, genderqueer people, and BIPOC people, and how non-stereotypical presentations. And once that lived experience got out there and we started moving away from like the DSM or ICD checklist, people were like, oh, okay, this actually explains quite a lot. So we've also seen this surge of awareness of non-stereotypical presentations while the pandemic was happening. So I think that has led, wonderfully so, to a lot more identification of autistic and ADHD adults who before were probably diagnosed with depression, anxiety, and many of who were confused of why am I not responding to treatment. So there's so many directions that I want to go into. I'm going to rein myself in a bit. And I would love to talk a little bit more about Misdiagnosis Mondays, and we will do that as soon as we get back from a quick break. I'm on the road this month, and oh man, am I missing my sweet kitties, Haskell and Lua. They've been a part of our family for more than two years, and I'm so grateful they're keeping Darren such good company while I'm away. If you're getting a new pet soon, you're probably already thinking about everything you'll need to buy, food, toys, a cozy bed, doggy bags, or litter boxes. Something you may not be thinking about, though, is pet insurance. That's why you should check out ASPCA Pet Health Insurance. The ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program offers customizable accident and illness plans, making it easier for pet parents like you to help your pet get the care they may need. The ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program has been around for over 18 years, and they've helped more than 600,000 pets during that time. They allow you to customize your plan, helping ensure that your pet's plan is as unique as they are, because vet bills can really add up, especially when you're least expecting it. It's simple. Use their app to submit a claim and you'll receive reimbursement for eligible vet bills directly into your bank account. To explore coverage, visit ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash parenting. That's ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash parenting. 
Again, that's ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash parenting. This is a paid advertisement. Insurance is underwritten by either Independence American Insurance Company or United States Fire Insurance Company and produced by PTZ Insurance Agency Limited. The ASPCA is not an insurer and is not engaged in the business of insurance. This year, I've been working on becoming more attuned to my body, and so I'm starting to really recognize how periodic spikes in anxiety or disruptions to my routines can seriously throw my whole system off. And as I've been traveling a ton this past month, which is both disruptive and somewhat stressful, I'm especially glad that I have the extra support of Symbiotic Plus, a three-in-one supplement from Ritual with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Symbiotic Plus provides fuel to the cells that make up the gut lining to support a healthy gut barrier. And it comes in this very cool minty delayed release capsule, which was specifically designed to help survive the harsh conditions of the upper GI tract for delivery to the colon. The bonus is that the capsules don't need to be refrigerated, so I can easily bring them with me in my carry-on. On a personal level, I love that Ritual is committed to sustainability. They're a female-founded B Corp, meaning they are holding themselves accountable long-term to not only think about their company's financial health, but also the health of people and our planet. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for limited time at ritual.com tilt. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com tilt for 25% off. The way that I first heard of your work was someone in my community turned me on to your misdiagnosis Mondays, and I started diving into your website and the the visuals you made. So could you tell us a little bit more about what misdiagnosis Mondays is and what you're doing through that work and how you're sharing it with people? Yeah. First of all, it took off in a way that I wasn't expecting. I started it when I probably had like 400 followers on Instagram. So it was kind of terrifying when these started going viral. But the reason I started it was really because of what I had experienced of realizing all of the diagnoses that I had had leading up to my autism diagnosis. I was thinking through also the like probably 500 plus clients I've had and realizing like, yep, I miss that person. I miss that person. I miss that person. And just realizing that autism could present as so many different things, especially like borderline personality disorder, I think is a really common misdiagnosis for autism. And so I just wanted to create a visualization. I think in visuals, I think in images. So I wanted to create a visualization of why does it make sense that autism is being misdiagnosed? And so that's why I wanted to create the Venn diagrams of showing like this is the overlap. This is how it could present. But if, if you dig under the surface, here's actually the cause of why it presents this way. And then from there, I got interested in ADHD. So I did a series on ADHD because that also can lead to a lot of misdiagnosis. I'm a little bit terrified by how viral the diagrams are because when I wrote them, I wrote them with a really long blog post article with like 20 research citations for every article. And when it lives outside of that context, I'm a little bit terrified of like, how are these being used? Is this oversimplifying the really complex things? But mostly I've heard from people that it's helpful to have that visual map. Yeah, that's fascinating. And you mentioned borderline personality disorder. That is something that I didn't realize that that can commonly be mistaken for autism. Could you talk about that a little bit more? It's really interesting. Yeah. To clarify, it is possible to have both. Now, 
for it to be both the experiences, the traits or symptoms of BPD would have to be above and beyond kind of a traumatized autistic experience. I actually have a, an ebook where I break down each of the kind of core criteria of BPD and explain why it could look like that for an autistic person. One, like sensory overload and emotional regulation can look a lot like some of the hot emotional moments that we typically see with BPD. The tendency for all or nothing thinking for a person to become a special interest and idealized. And then like the moment something turns that person, again, because of that all or nothing thinking, that person maybe becomes devalued. That can look like BPD idealization devaluation. And that's something a lot of people don't realize people can become special interests for autistic people. And so that can bring on a lot of like attachment stuff and emotion stuff that again can look a lot like BPD. The diffuse sense of self, if someone is a high masking autistic person, it means our social self is really diffuse because we're constantly queuing into the other person to figure out who we are. BPD is characterized by a very kind of diffuse self that changes depending on their environment, who they're with, or just a, a struggle to have a stable sense of self. I could go on, but I'll stop there. Those are some of the reasons that an undiagnosed autistic person could look like they had BPD. It's so fascinating. And you said that you could have both, someone could have both BPD and be autistic. It reminds me that when my child was very young and the very first formal assessment we went through, I think when my child was five, 13, 14 years ago, we were told you can't be ADHD and autistic. Those cancel each other out. Giftedness wasn't even factored in to the equation. Could you just clarify that? It is possible to have multiple things going on, correct? Yeah, it is. It is. And that, that's been a change to the DSM. And, and that's partly why it's so under-researched. I mean, thankfully, we're catching up. But the overlap between autism and ADHD is huge, but we're really kind of just at the beginning of that research because until the recent version of the DSM, yeah, it was said that you couldn't have both, you couldn't be diagnosed with both. That's not true anymore, which is great. With personality disorders, you want to rule out ADHD or autism or neurodevelopmental condition before diagnosing the personality disorder. And then you want to make sure that the symptoms you're seeing is not explained by the neurodevelopmental condition. So for example, for me, when I'm assessing or diagnosing, first of all, I want to address the neurodivergent trauma before I'd even consider a personality disorder. Let's get that person sensory regulated. Let's address the trauma of being a neurodivergent person that's undiagnosed for X amount of years. And then maybe it could be beneficial to reassess to see if they meet criteria for a personality disorder. But I think first addressing the traumatic neurodivergent experience is really important. So that's the second time you brought up trauma. And so I'd love to unpack that a little bit because obviously we know that environments can be traumatizing school. I hear from so many parents whose kids are traumatized through school experiences, but I'd love to know, you said specifically if someone has been undiagnosed and the result of that and going through their life, what kind of trauma would you expect to see or are you looking for when you're factoring that in? Yeah. And I really like Kelly Mailer's work here. She's an occupational therapist. I mean, we have to really think beyond the, the big T traumas. So for example, sensory trauma, just like 
low grade or medium grade chronic sensory trauma, that is really grating on the nervous system. Social trauma of being perpetually misunderstood, misattuned to, but not knowing why. Bullying, a lot of victimization and bullying. So those experiences, they might not sound like the classic traumas, but if experienced at a chronic and pervasive tone throughout the lifetime, can absolutely lead to a traumatized nervous system and a traumatized view of self. And then beyond that, there's also reasons that we are more vulnerable to the victim traumas. We're more vulnerable to be victimized. There's a study that came out, nine out of 10 autistic women talked about being sexually victimized at some point. We are very naive. We're very gullible. We're very vulnerable, especially if we're not identified. We don't know we're vulnerable. So we might put ourselves in situations that an holistic person would know, like, that's a dangerous situation. Don't do that. Because they're the context cues that they're picking up that, that we might not. So there's also loads of big T trauma that happens. It's kind of a traumatizing world when you're neurodivergent. And then when you're under supported, because you're not identified, it leads to the confusion, which tends to lead to a lot of internalized shame for neurodivergent people. Yeah, I just need to take a deep breath because it sounds and feels overwhelming. If you think about parenting a child who may have a lot of this little T trauma, but building up and building up and then trying to get our kids the support. We know that so many therapists in kind of a traditional therapeutic model don't necessarily understand the neurodivergence piece. They are focusing on the symptoms, the anxiety, the depression. And my hunch is it would be really important to address this trauma before any of that other support can happen. How do we even support our kids in getting back to baseline if they do have that built up trauma in their systems? Yeah. When we hop off this call, I'm finishing up a blog post right now on the importance of sensory regulation. And that's because sensory regulation is the foundation of other regulation systems So we can't be regulated in our nervous system, in our emotions, in our actions, in our focus and attention when we're sensory dysregulated. And that's the piece that's often missed by mental health providers when if they don't have the neurodivergent lens, they're like working higher up on the hierarchy of regulation. And so if parents can come in and really understand and have a sensory lens and think through, okay, what are the sensory demands of a day of life in the day of my child? And how can we move towards sensory regulation? How can we build in sensory detox time? How can I drop some demands that are very like high sensory demands? Parents can come alongside and really help facilitate sensory regulation. So that would be one thing that comes to mind. Yeah, thank you. That's really helpful. I would love to talk a little bit more about distinguishing between things like ADHD, anxiety, and autism. We'll just take a quick break and then we can go into that a little more. If you listen to this show, you probably know that at least one in five children is differently wired. But did you know that approximately one in two women will experience hair thinning? If you're part of that 50%, you are absolutely not alone. But because hair thinning for women isn't something people openly talk about, going through it can feel lonely and frustrating. So why not do something about it with Nutrafol? Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist recommended hair growth supplement with over 1 million people seeing thicker, stronger, faster growing hair with less shedding. Everyone's root causes of hair thinning are different, so a one-size-fits-all approach to hair growth isn't going to cut it. 
Nutrafol has multiple formulas tailored to give your hair what it needs to grow throughout different stages, postpartum, menopause, even for different lifestyles like a plant-based diet. To get your personalized hair health plan based on your specific root causes, you can take a simple hair wellness quiz on Nutrafol.com. And because there's no prescription required, you can quickly get set up online with free shipping and automated deliveries, which make it so much easier to stick with your new hair care routine. See results in three to six months. Take the first step to visibly thicker, healthier hair. For a limited time, Nutrafol is offering our listeners $10 off your first month subscription and free shipping when you go to Nutrafol.com and enter the promo code TILT. Find out why over 4,500 healthcare professionals and hairstylists recommend Nutrafol for healthier hair. Nutrafol.com spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com promo code TILT. That's Nutrafol.com promo code TILT. Hey there, it's Debbie. I love making this show and sharing conversations about how to support our awesome neurodivergent kids. I've seen how even one little insight from an interview can spark a big shift in daily life. But I know that raising complex kids can be messy and lonely. And just when we think we figured it out, something comes up that boots us right back to feeling overwhelmed and stuck. That's why I've poured everything into creating a way for parents like us navigating complex parenting journeys to join together and chart a path that feels positive, hopeful, and doable. It's the brand new Differently Wired Club experience. In the club, you'll get personal support from me and other seasoned parent coaches, six live calls every month where you can connect and get your personal questions answered, the opportunity to learn directly from authors and experts like I have on this show, monthly themes for getting specific and tactical, an exclusive private podcast feed, and the best, most generous community of parents. Seriously, these folks show up for themselves and each other, and that right there is really everything. Because it's a daily reminder that we're not alone. Our kids aren't broken, and we have totally got this. The recently rebooted Differently Wired Club is on a brand new platform with its very own iOS and Android app. It is such a great space. However you learn, whatever your style, no matter the ages, genders, and neurodivergent profile of your children, the Differently Wired Club can help you cultivate the positive shifts you're hoping for. Join us today by going to tiltparenting.com slash club. That's tiltparenting.com slash club. I hope to see you on the inside. So when we're thinking about specifically ADHD and autism and anxiety, anxiety seems to be something that could be on its own, or it's something that often co-occurs with anxiety and ADHD. I'd love to know how important it is to kind of understand, I don't know if it's a chicken and egg kind of a thing, like to just understand deeply what exactly is going on here and how does that affect the supports we might seek for our kids? Yeah, I I think it's extremely important because the supports and the treatment are going to differ. Dr. Jonathan Dalton talks about this. I actually just listened to a training he did that was fantastic that talked about the difference between, for example, anxiety and dread. And for a kid with sensory sensitivities, if they are dreading going to school or they're dreading going to the dentist, it's because they know what's going to happen. They know they're going to go and there's going to be a sensory overloading experience. That's not anxiety. They might be calling it anxiety because that's the only word they know. But that's actually dread. And and anxiety is based on a fear of what might happen. With anxiety, avoidance just fuels the fire. And so you really target avoidance behaviors. Now, you want to do the same thing with a sensory dread. 
And so the treatment is very, very different. Same thing with ADHD and anxiety. Is the child anxious because they can't trust their mind because their working memory is struggling and they can't hold things in mind? And so they're anxious because they know as soon as they transition, they're going to lose that thought. We would treat that differently than the pure anxiety. Yeah, that makes so much sense. And I feel like we could do a whole conversation on that. Very fascinating because I'm sure you're reading the same reports I am about this spike in anxiety and depression among young adults and teens, adolescents, and tweens. I'm just really interested in how that is being supported and whether or not the modalities that parents are using or therapists are using are actually effective, you know? Yeah, yeah. I would love to just before we wrap up, talk a little bit about the assessment process. And I know that you focus primarily on adults. And I know there are going to be a lot of parents who are listening to this who are wondering, how do I go about finding the right person? That comes up in listservs all the time that I'm in, someone who really understands complicated kids. And I know you talk about neurodiversity affirming assessments. And so I'd love if you could talk about what that is and maybe what are some signs that someone might be neurodiversity affirming in the way they approach evaluations? Yeah. So some language signs that might be there would be just even talking about neurodivergence. Now, I will say that's becoming a little bit of a catchphrase, which is both good and bad. Good in that I like that people are starting to think differently outside of pathology. But then there's a lot of people who are putting that, like sprinkling that on their websites. But then if you go deeper, you realize their principles actually aren't neurodivergent affirming. But looking for language around like neurodivergent affirming, neurodivergent informed, language such as like ASD, autistic spectrum disorder, they're going to be working from the more traditional paradigm. And so that's going to be a different experience. As far as assessment tools, I really like the MIGDOS. It's better at capturing non-stereotypical presentations of autism. Frankly, I think it's better at capturing girls and genderqueer children and again, non-stereotypical presentations. So even if they're only using the ADOS, that's kind of considered the gold standard for children. That would be something I'd be paying attention to. I'd ask like, do you also use elements of the MIGDOS? And then how they talk about autism, on the, again, on their website, you're going to get a lot of those language signs of how they're talking about it. The difference in regards to the assessment and the report, the measurements are pretty much the same other than I th- those of us who are doing affirming assessments tend to like the MGDOS. But the language of the report is going to be really different. Traditional reports, it's so deficit-based. This child can't do this. The child can't do that. Whereas an affirming report is going to talk about brain style, brain style differences, strengths of the autistic or ADHD brain style, as well as like these are areas of struggle, that these are some support needs because they're navigating an holistic world. So the languaging of that report is going to feel really different. And then the messaging to this child as well, you know, whatever message a parent receives around a diagnosis, they're going to take that in. And that's going to influence how they talk to their child about, about the diagnosis. So language of brain style and differences, this is so important, I think, in the assessment process, because that sort of messaging is going to be so much more empowering for a child than deficit-based language. Yeah, that's so helpful. And I think that's where so many parents, at least who come here to tilt, if they've just gone through that process, 
Some of them are traumatized by the way the report was presented to them, the language that was used, the urgency behind the interventions and all of that stuff. So it is a good reminder to take your time and trying to find, and then of course, we know there are huge waiting lists, but to take your time in finding the right person who will really have that strengths-based approach. I kind of want to nuance that of it is just, it's so hard to get an assessment. And if, if you're trying to get your child accommodations, get the assessment where you can, like if you can get a lower cost or a free assessment through the like kind of medical system you're in, and then learn ways of how you're going to message it to your child. So yes, when possible, find an affirming assessment. But I, I fear that that message could also lead to more parent paralysis of like, it's so hard. And if, if you need that diagnosis to get access to occupational therapy or accommodations, there are ways that you can be a buffer in how you're messaging the results to the child. Yeah, that's great. I don't know if you've read Megan Ashburn and Jules Edwards book, I Will Die on This Hill. Heard of that book yet? I've heard of it. I haven't read it yet. It's really great. I I loved it. They're actually on this season as well talking about it. But one of the things that Jules, who is an autistic adult raising autistic kids talks about is taking an autism moon. So instead of a honeymoon or a baby moon, just taking a year when you have that information to just come to a place of peace about it yourself to really take the time to research how do I want to support my child and slow things down. Oh, I love that. Yeah, because parents are, as soon as a diagnosis, it's like, here's 10 interventions you should do right now. If you put your kid in 10 interventions, you're going to burn them out and you're going to burn yourself out. I love that idea of an autism moon. I, I often say that to parents too, of like, pick one, pick one out of the list, pick the one that your child is most interested in. Take your time. Yeah, that's great. I'd love to have you back in the future, specifically to talk about girls and autism. I've heard you talk about that elsewhere. And that is an interesting exploration. And I think we could go deep on that. But before we wrap up, I know you have a book that you're working on self care for autistic people. Would you tell us a little bit about that project? Yeah, I'm really excited about it. It's Simon and Schuster. It should be out early January 2024. And it's really kind of bite-sized information of like, here's a hundred plus tips of self-care strategies for autistic people, probably more geared for adults and teenagers. But I think, you know, if parents were to read it, they'd be learning about kind of the inner workings of an autistic mind and body. That's exciting. Where are you in the publishing process? I am, I am in the middle of a sprint of, I was contacted about this project recently and I'm turning the transcript over in four months. So, you know, you can be sending me positive energy. Last time I wrote a book, it was like a 15-month process, not a four-month process. So I'm in the middle of writing it. All right. Well, we will send you energy to get to the finish line. I know what a huge lift it is to do. Before we say goodbye, where can listeners connect with you and learn more about your work? Yeah. So I am on Instagram, neurodivergent, the underscore insights. Best way to get in contact with me would be my email. And then my website, neurodivergentinsights.com. I have a membership area where there's lots of workbooks and resources, and as well as a newsletter. I have a newsletter for families. That newsletter is probably be best for your listeners because that's where I talk more about parenting and children. Awesome. Well, listeners, I will have links to all the places that you can connect with Megan on the show notes page. It'll be pretty extensive. I've taken lots of notes during this conversation. So Megan, I want to just thank you so much for everything you shared today. And I just really appreciate you sharing with us today. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on and for this 
is obviously a really dear and dear topic to me. So thank you for making the space for this conversation. You've been listening to the Tilt Parenting Podcast. To go deeper into this episode, visit the extensive show notes page. For every episode, there's a dedicated page on my website with links to all the resources mentioned, a full transcript, and a podcast player with key takeaways marked so you can easily go back and re-listen to the sections you're most interested in. Just go to tiltparenting.com slash podcast and select this episode. The Tilt Parenting Podcast is hosted by me, Debbie Reber, author of the book Differently Wired and the founder of Tilt Parenting. This episode was edited by Andrea Curtis Amasquita, and show notes were put together by myself, Andrea, and Lindsay McFadden. If you get a lot out of this podcast and want to help cover the cost of its production, please consider joining my Patreon campaign. On Patreon, you can sign up to make a small monthly contribution, as little as $2 a month, and it's super easy to sign up. Just go to patreon.com slash parenting to learn more or click on the Patreon link on any show notes page. To follow Tilt Parenting on social media, go to at Tilt Parenting on Instagram and Twitter and on Facebook. Lastly, please help this podcast stay visible and easily found by the listeners who need it by subscribing and leaving a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you so much. And that's all for this week. Stay safe, stay well, and take good care. And for more information about this podcast or any of the resources that Tilt offers, visit TiltParenting.com. If you're a parent, I invite you to join us at the Mindful Mama podcast, where it's all about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent with sometimes hilarious and always thought-provoking experts and friends. At Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have. And when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm Hunter Clark Fields, and I can't wait to see you there. Listen in to the Mindful Mama podcast.